Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren King. Darren, uh, here we go again. A lot of news has been happening since the last time we recorded. A lot of things going on. We're on that treadmill, though. We're still kind of pacing, kind of working our way through the developments, and uh, you know, we're not we're not close. We're making progress. I think we are making progress. Um, one thing that happened recently, I mean, as recently as uh, yesterday, I believe, was the release of this new uh, Arrow report. And uh, obviously, that's always a, a highly anticipated report. We want to see what's going to be in there. Uh, everybody, it's sort of that thing. It's, like, it's kind of a meme at this point. When it comes out, we're all just like disappointed in it. Uh, the reactions have been almost universally like panning it. There's not a lot of substance there. Clearly, there are, there's a rise in reporting. Uh, there is more detail in terms of how they seem to be handling these reports. There are a few little nuggets in there that are that are interesting. The the appendix is interesting. Kind of the resources that were that are being used. Uh, the interagency discussions are interesting as well. The charts are absolutely horrific. Like they're just terrible, terrible charts, not worth even looking at. But, uh, you know, I, I find that it's good that it came out just period. I mean, I mean, we can be upset with it, and I think we should, but uh, to expect that it's going to be some sort of like amazing bombshell that we're going to find in an error report from Sean Kirkpatrick, I, I think that's a, an expectation that just doesn't match reality. But what are your feelings with uh, that particular release? Yeah, pretty much the same way that you stated it there. I think that we are in the long game here. The approach from Arrow is going to be very, very conservative. They're almost going to take the conservative academic approach. And basically, until they have a smoking gun, according to the very narrow confines of what they consider a smoking gun, we will not get anything that looks like smoking gun evidence. So this is going to be a long game. If, on the one hand, this is tied into some sort of disclosure push, ultimately, it will still be the long game push, is my perspective, that we may be hearing revelations from other quarters first. Whatever comes from Arrow ultimately will be a long game. And even then, there's still the question of, are the intentions really genuine to do a serious investigation or is this a bit of a shell game? We will find out. But either way, I agree with you. People shouldn't expect too much anytime soon. This is going to be a step-by-step -step process. I think if anything, there has been a bit of a change in response from Arrow in terms of responding to some of the criticism. Mm -hmm. They finally got a website up, for instance, even though it looks like the most basic like 1998 website I've ever seen in my life. But it's technically there, so they are taking steps slow but sure. But again, I think ultimately, whatever revelations do emerge, it will not be coming from Arrow. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, and remember, there are lots of uh, kind of parallel tracks happening at one time. We've got Arrow doing things, NASA doing things, the Schumer legislation that is making its way through Congress. Uh, in some ways, you know, if you were really conspiratorial. There's a high degree of political management happening with the entire process. You know, nothing is sort of getting too far out ahead of another. And if one were to get far farther out ahead, you can also point to these other these other initiatives and say, "Oh well, it's not too big of a deal. We've actually got something that's interested in that already." Like, you know, Sean Kirkpatrick, take it away. What do you think about that? Like, it's not like we're caught flat-footed. I think that's the if you're thinking politically and and just how you would manage this overall in a society. These are things that I would expect to see. It's kind of like I think of it as a pressure release valve. You know, if you have like a an instant pot or a pressure cooker, you know, you don't just like let all the steam out all all at once. You kind of slowly release that pressure before you open up the lid. 
And I think these different initiatives basically serve in that capacity as these little release valves, allowing different agencies, different players to sort of uh, allow information to come out one bit at a time. And it's also a little bit competitive too, to a certain degree, you know, what, what is going to be allowed to come out, what can be uh, controlled. Indeed. In fact, when you use the analogy of pressure cooker, just before you said that, I was thinking that analogy of slow cooking a frog, mm. or if you put a frog in water, you slowly turn up the temperature, it won't jump out and you'll eventually boil the frog. But if you put it in hot water, it'll immediately jump out. Now, use that as an analogy for political, socio-political destabilization, right? So the frog jumping out of the boiling water is when it suddenly has that shock. And so instead, what we're seeing is a slow turning up so that people eventually, when they really come into metacognitive awareness of what's going on here, they kind of realize it's been part of our circles for a while now. And it's been part of the discourse. They can look back and say, well, actually, yeah, it was happening here, it was happening here, it was happening here. Even though as it happens in real time, other than for those of us obsessed with this topic, it's kind of happening you know, below radar for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then there have uh, also been some developments, uh, you know, speaking of kind of political management, things like that, there have been some developments you know, on the political front when it comes to statements from certain politicians, as well as uh, developments on the, on the SCIF scheduling uh, with uh, the two inspector generals, one from the Department of Defense and the other one from the intelligence community. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you hearing there? What, what kind of the quotes that are standing out for you? Well, let's go back to the first one I remember coming out a while ago now was Representative Anna Polina Luna, who said, quote, just got word that we will be allowed to do the SCIF, which again, for people, stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility, classified UAP briefing referencing Grush with the IG. And then someone asked, by the way, I saw this on X slash Twitter, can you clarify if this means, one, you will be having a classified briefing with the IG and David Grush present, or two, you will be having classified briefing with the IG about Russia's allegations. To which Joe Khalil of News Nation responded, quote, it's the latter. Grush, per my reporting, won't be there. Two inspector generals will be, and they'll be asked about Grush's claims, per a congressional source of mine. The UAP caucus still wants to get Grush into a skiff, however, and I know he wants that too. And then Representative Tim Burchett said, a skiff has been booked for members of Congress to meet with the inspectors general of the Department of Defense and the intelligence community to discuss UAPs in a classified setting. Dates for the meetings, DOD IG, October 26th, the ICIG, November 16th. It's a start, unquote. Big developments there. I mean, that is just around the corner. Now, let's keep in mind, uh, we also don't have a functioning Congress at the moment. So uh, these things are certainly... Uh, subject to some variability, uh, depending on what happens in that larger context, uh, we shall see. Uh, things are a little bit, a little bit hairy right now. Uh, now, politics aside, there have been some pretty big announcements uh, recently in the UFO world. Um, one was the release of this uh, this follow up book, Initial Revelations, which is a follow up to the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, uh, written by uh, George Knapp, Colm Kelleher, and James Lukatsky. And then we recently had a, a podcast, a weaponized podcast with those three gentlemen uh, and, and Jeremy Corbell. And there's a lot of content we, I think we want to get into around that particular conversation. So, so Darren, first of all, before we kind of go through some of these points, 
what's sort of the top line takeaway from the, from the book for you? I know we, we talked a little bit about this. Like the book has a totally different vibe than Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Yeah, absolutely. I think these guys actually got it got under their skin a little bit. Some of the feedback, some of the criticism about Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. It's almost a bit funny hearing Lekatsky talk about like reading Amazon reviews of the book and being frustrated by people's responses. But that's basically what he said. So the new book is much more encyclopedic in a way, like a textbook, going through a nuts and bolts perspective analysis of the operation of these craft, their propulsion systems, lift, things like that, much less about dino beavers than the first book. And of course, that I think is largely because they were frustrated by the criticism they got. And being scientific folk, they didn't want to be mistaken for people who believe only in the paranormal. So in this book, they were very clear to focus on that uh, more than nuts and bolts perspective. In fact, at one point, George Knapp was saying that they literally tossed around the notion or the title nuts and bolts as a title for the book. And then, you know, said kind of ironically, but using the word nuts in a UFO book might not be such a good idea, after all. <laughs> uh, which is which is a good point. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but nevertheless, it's a very interesting book. And I will say this, I think that the information that came out in this interview was very, very interesting, even though to a large extent, Lekansky specifically was very careful not to say anything that wasn't specifically in the book. He would not wax philosophic very much at all beyond that, because basically he would only discuss what had already been approved by the DOD. So they went through, of course, that process again. This time, I think they said it only took seven months instead of 14 months for the first book to get cleared. And there were a few things that got changed and edited here and there, but I think their perspective between Calm Kelleher and Lekatsky was that they know the game, they know what's likely to be allowed and not. That's probably why it went through more smoothly this time. But nevertheless, there were some very interesting nuggets in the book itself that I know you're working your way through right now, and many nuggets that were brought up in the interview, even though the interview was a bit frustrating because I think they had some sort of time delay issue. It almost sounded like they were talking over each other at points. And at one point, George Knapp dropped off and came back on on this really super tinny phone line. But nevertheless, all that aside, there were some very interesting revelations about what Lukatsky calls the bottom line of what this might all represent. And he discussed that. He made some very interesting comments about human potential and how that plays into this. Jeremy at one point brought up the notion of being a bit concerned that the reason why this is so tight was because ultimately it was very dark. Actually, Lukatsky had a very counter argument to that and said, no, not at all. I don't look at it that perspective at all. But that admitted that perhaps his Catholic background was somewhat prejudicing the way he looked at the whole thing. So that's interesting. And again, as soon as I heard that, I thought that's liminal frames territory there for sure. But that's some of my initial takeaways from the book in comparison to the previous one. Yeah. And I know we're spending a good bit of time on on the statements that the Katsky made uh, in the interview. But I want to kind of flesh out a little bit of something that you just talked about in terms of the the, the tenor of the book, the tone, uh, and the the the, the tag that, that it took. And that, it really speaks to me to the, this is where we are in the broader social conversation with the phenomena generally, right? It, you think about the reaction to skinwalkers at the Pentagon and the strange phenomena that was disguised, d- d- described and discussed. And the the very like visceral reaction that society most of the readers had to some of these claims, like that's just crazy. Like there's no way that that's real. Look at these people who are you know chasing you know fairy tales and ghosts and think that kind of thing. 
And here we go with a with a counterpoint to that with a lot of hard materialist science. And that's, you know, this is that social signaling at work here to say, well, if you're going to take this seriously, because the only way that our paradigm understands serious is through a scientific lens, then let me hit you with all this science. Almost like McCaskey saying like, no, 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 like, don't make fun of me. Like, I'm a really smart person. And here's all this science that we did and I can back it up. Right. So that that's how I see that this book. And, it, and to me, it just speaks to the the remaining distance we have to cover to sort of bridge the gap between the uh, the knee-jerk, visceral, in some cases like a giggle reaction to the strangeness of the phenomena and the and the materialist perspective that that says, you know, we can only look at something if it occurs within this kind of parameter. We can only take something seriously if we can objectively measure it and talk about it in this particular way. So uh, we're, we're still, in my opinion, a long ways away from from really bridging that divide and getting to a place where we can accept that strange things happen that, that that happen outside of our scientific paradigm and we need a new paradigm in order to understand it all. Indeed, I think those legacy UFO people, the ufological veterans, if you will, will be happy with this book in the sense that for many of those people, and Valet has talked about this, and he's been critical of these folk actually, these are the people who basically believe this is all about ETs coming from Alpha Centauri or Zeta Reticuli here in spacecraft to survey the Earth, perhaps do some medical experiments, a very science fiction kind of picture. And from their point of view, then you want to look at things like the means of propulsion. You want to look at the lift. You want to look at the material kind of analysis, those kinds of things, right? And this book very much focuses on that. That said, all of these gentlemen are very clear to point out, in fact, they bring this up several times in the interview with Knapp and Corbell. If you're going to look into the UFO phenomenon, you must consider the psychic aspects as well. You must consider the cultural framing aspect as well. If you don't, you have no business whatsoever looking into this phenomenon, which was very interesting. So they basically didn't say, well, some people want to focus on the nuts and bolts and some people want to look more into the paranormal aspects the cultural aspects, but they're saying there's no way you can separate those. If you were to understand this with any granularity and any sort of like 30,000 foot view kind of perspective, you must consider each of those. Otherwise, you will be woefully incomplete and your, your analysis and your hypothesis that you generate will be woefully misguided. So that was very interesting that on the one hand, this is a book for the nuts and bolts folk in a way, but only within this larger context as well. Mm, that's good. And it sounds like we are pushing for that. And and obviously, a lot of ground left to cover and to get us to that place of broader understanding. You mentioned uh, Lukaski, you know, raised his his Catholic background, and uh, you know, almost his, um, you know, his knee jerk reaction or his his passing comment about the de demonic qualities here. Uh, what did that jump out to you, like in terms of uh, you know his his almost like uh, immune response to, to this aspect of the phenomenon? Yeah, it was very interesting, again, for people like you and I who tend to look at this from a cultural perspective and meaning models and those kinds of things. It was a little frustrating only because Tilly is not a social scientist, and social scientists are much more attuned to the nuances of these kind of questions. And so, first of all, he did at one point acknowledge that when Jeremy Corbell said something about his concern that ultimately this is very dark and that's why it's being covered up. 
Lukatsky said, no, 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 I don't have that perspective at all. And then he talked about human potential, which we can get into later. But then he also said, maybe it's just my Catholic background, but I tend to have a positive view about how this is all going to work out. So basically there he's confessing that he is biased by the fact that he has a certain view of reality, and he assumes that this will somehow fit into this. Now, again, whenever I hear those kinds of things, I assume that people in ufology are going to take that to the bank and assume that's based on solid intel, that he knows this is all good. It fits within a Catholic perspective. You know, God's still on the throne. It's all good. Those kinds of things, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's catching himself almost mid-sentence and saying, well, wait a second, maybe this is actually me just assuming certain things because of my background. So I hope people notice that. And I hope people recognize that no human being walking the planet can look at data and not lay an interpretive grid over top of that data. It's what we do. It's how we navigate through the world. So we always need to be cognizant of that. And that's why absolutely we need to have social scientists involved in this conversation. And there's an article that came out recently about that very notion that we need to have social science involved. We need to have anthropologists involved, cultural anthropologists even, who understand the nuances of these things. But the other thing that was interesting was at one point he kind of ventured into the possibility. He didn't say it was demonic, but he said, are we potentially talking about something demonic? That's part of the conversation. I think he meant it in a more overarching kind of, let's consider all the possibilities. We need to do that. We need to bring in all the different perspectives into the conversation. But the way he said it, I think many, many people will take away that, again, he's seen some clear evidence of something demonic. And of course, for people like you and I, again, with a religious studies background, we immediately jump to the question, what do you mean by demonic? There is no agreed upon notion of what this means, like gravity or something. It's not like that. These terms mean different things in different corpuses and different traditions. And again, the problem is he's already admitted he has a Catholic background. He is prejudiced by that. But then to insert demon as a term or demonic as a term, knowing he has a certain way of looking at that based on his perspective and not recontextualizing it for the larger audience, many people will take it as a given that one of the options on the table is a straight theological perspective of fallen angels attacking human beings in this war with Father God on the throne kind of thing. And the question is, again, looking back at history, how do we know we're not just shifting a modern interpretation of the phenomenon as being space aliens for a former interpretation of these being fallen angels? We shouldn't do that. We should look at the data in its rawest form, be very, very careful, and have people from different disciplines involved so that we don't fall into this very common human tendency to insert our interpretations over top the data and then think we're doing a clean job. So this is what I was concerned about when I heard him bring up his Catholic background and then the demonic and realizing all these implications that are important things to think about, but we have to be very careful and very cognizant about how we do it. Yeah. And to me, we're, we're still dealing with this sort of atomization of, of thinking in the Western world. We're, 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 we've inherited this legacy of certain kinds of knowledge belong in these certain kinds of boxes. And, you know, my, my, my cultural lens, there's my scientific lens in academia. Obviously this is very apparent, the different disciplines and they, they never really talk to each other. I mean, one of the benefits that we've talked about before of AI is of course, being able to take all this content and look for connections across these disciplines, because 
these folks don't actually talk to each other. They don't they don't kind of cross paths and have these serendipitous encounters that that go, oh wait, you're studying that and you're viewing it from your discipline and it means this. Well, wait a minute, that intersects with something I discovered. And when you put these two discoveries together, we have a brand new picture of what's really going on. And we need more of that. So there's not just a stove piping in the study of this phenomena. There's a stove piping generally in our in our conceptions of reality, in, you know, in the world. You know, we have to get to a place where we are going to blend the, these things together and be willing to have those conversations across those ideological boundaries. Absolutely, and I would just add to that that even within academia, the focus has been on specialization. Right, you do a PhD in a certain specialization. It's usually a very niche aspect of one particular discipline, right? And so some kinds of anthropologists, like an evolutionary biological anthropologist, like Mike Masters, is not necessarily in the same field, really, as a cultural anthropologist who's looking at very different matters. And that's just within anthropology. But in academia in general, there's this sense that we focus on specialization rather than generalization. And that alone becomes a huge problem when bringing academia into the study of the phenomenon, because we actually have a willful stovepiping that happens within academia as well as within government because of security concerns. So we have this sort of double-edged sword on both sides, and we really need to rethink that. We need to, I think, try to encourage more generalized thinking where people have a bit of background across the board kind of thing, because we need that kind of thinking, that kind of para-thinking to be able to really make sense of this with any hope of really having some sort of comprehensive understanding. So again, not only pushing against security concerns and the security apparatus of government and the military industrial complex, but also the very way that academia has formed and continues to basically exist in the 21st century. That's right. I mean, just just think about the 9-11 and how we were kind of caught flat-footed. How did we not see this coming? Well, in fact, we did. There were several agencies that that had little tips of information that had they were actually talking to each other, we would have, you know, perhaps prevented that that tragedy from occurring. And so I just worry that we're kind of placing ourselves in the same situation or just this legacy of compartmentalization and compartmentalized thinking is going to put us in a place where we're caught unawares. We're not really prepared as a society to deal with the larger implications at play here. And, you know, this ties directly into some of the other statements that Lukatsky made. Um, I think here, just in terms of his confidence about how things are, how certain things are. And, and I loved how he talked about, you know, I was in a cubicle and I was doing certain things. And it was a $22 million project and the guy in the cubicle next to me had no idea what I was doing. And so, you know, if that's the reality on the ground of the situation with OSAP and whatnot, it seems a little bit presumptuous to me for someone to kind of then make claims that, well, I don't know if David Grush maybe has all the information, you know, because I, I have a bigger picture about it. And you can just imagine that if you are a head of a project and all these different various compartmentalized projects, they all have a similar mentality, right? I'm kind of, a, I've got that macro view of what's happening, but in reality, they only have a macro view of their actual program. So, so we're dealing with uh, a degree of hubris that we have to overcome in order for us to, to get to a broader place of understanding. And I don't think we're going to get there until we're willing to knock down some of these barriers. Indeed, and something that occurred to me in terms of stovepiping and too narrow thinking, one thing that's interesting about this book, again, because they are trying to basically go in a completely different direction, the opposite direction from Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, 
it's a very physicalist based book, right? It's basically assuming that the physicalist assumptions about the nature of reality ultimately are correct. And within that perspective, this is how some of this technology might be working. I would have preferred a book that maybe was a bit more of a mix between the two rather than this almost reaction to the responses to the first book. Because again, I think to really open the aperture here and ask the most important questions, we have to be looking for ways that the revelations of the phenomenon itself, the confounding nature of it, that should lead us to question our models of reality. And in my recent interview with Bernardo Castrop in our conversation, both he and I are on the same page about that, that his book, Meaning in Absurdity, basically the subtitle is saying that how can bizarre things that happen in reality, even though they shouldn't, how can that tell us something about the nature of reality? We should look at that as a great tool, a great opportunity, a gift, staring us in the face saying, your model is much too narrow. And in the second half of my conversation with Bernardo, which will air next weekend, we get into that even more and some really interesting notions come up. So again, that's the kind of thinking we need to be doing, not just lock this into a physicalist model and try to think how this might be technology of 2050 or something. We need to do more than that. And that's where I think, unfortunately, some of the reactionism to the first book in some ways set us in the wrong direction here. I'd like to see something more overarching that includes both. Because even though they're talking about the fact that we need to have this overarching perspective where the paranormal absolutely intersects with the phenomenon, this book doesn't really do that so much. And I really want to see us move forward with that in mind. Mm. Well, the word frustrating comes to mind here. And they, they talk about further volumes that they plan to publish around the work that they did. And and I'm frustrated because you know, in that interview with, with Lekatsky, uh, he doesn't really say very much. In fact, what he does say is often kind of like it needs to be more, more confusing and misleading or, you know, and people have commented about this quite a bit that, you know, the guy almost seems like the villain in the story. Uh, so to some degree, it's like, why do an interview at all if, if you're not really going to provide any sort of definitive conclusions or make statements that are so convoluted that, that don't really lead us to any particular answers? Uh, I would be doubly frustrated if future volumes kind of begin going in that direction. It's like, well, why did we not take that path immediately? You know, but maybe there's this desire to sort of document the, the entire journey, almost like a like a historian would, uh, to lay out all of the things as they as they unfolded. I just, I don't know. I I feel like there's time that is lost in in our what our our willingness, our, our lack of uh, willingness to actually tackle this and go ahead and push the boundaries and the frontiers of this kind of knowledge. Um, you know, I want to get to that that comment that he made. And you brought this up a little bit, but I want to get the actual quote. So it's it was around the, the issue about, you know, is there something dark to this? Is there something, you know, something to be afraid of or whatever? And and his response to that, uh, Lukaski's response was, this is not something we need to fear if full human capabilities were known. It's a, it's a, it's a weird statement, uh, a lot of different interpretations of that. So when you hear it, what are some of the interpretations that that you think of different ways to, to look at that at that text? Well, first of all, just to put that in context, what had happened was, I think this is the part of the interview where basically Lekatsky claimed there was a very good reason why he couldn't answer certain questions. And questions that seem commonsensical to other people, like why wouldn't you be able to answer them? In other words, it wasn't clear to people like Corbell why this would be a national security concern and you couldn't answer this basic question. And he said, I'm frustrated because not only 
can you not answer the question? And you tell me there's a good reason why, but you can't tell me what that good reason is. And then Jeremy said, so that makes me very suspicious. It makes me wonder if the entire endeavor is very dark once you get under the surface layer. And then Lekatsky jumped in and said, no, 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 not at all. In fact, if anything, if human beings understood their full potential, they'd realize there's nothing to be afraid of or something to that effect. And then he then again brought up the fact that, well, wait a second, you know, I am a Catholic and perhaps this is me being somewhat prejudiced by my background. So you're left with, so how much of that comment should we take seriously as something he's understood as intel again, or is he again waxing philosophic based on his worldview? It's kind of unclear. So a lot of this kind of sloppiness in terms of, on the one hand, he dodges almost every question. And literally, sometimes he was asked a question and there was this silence. And then he would say, you'll notice I'm not saying anything <laughs> because basically I'm not going to say anything more than literally the text that's been approved by the DOD. It's already in the book. So again, I think that's why people were somewhat frustrated. It's almost like it was almost like a negative result in terms of you came in being sure of less than you had beforehand. And we can get into later how even some of the comments he made seemed to potentially undermine Grush. Or at the very least, to Grush's critics, they could use this as fuel, basically, to go against what he was saying. And that's not what I think Lekatsky had in mind when he said these things. But unfortunately, that may be the result. So the question is, yes, what did he mean by if human potential was fully understood, we would have nothing to be afraid of? I think here, first of all, of comments that Tom DeLong has made in the past, Tom DeLong also talked about, while on the one hand, he's referenced these very dark entities that don't mean well for human civilization. On the other hand, he said, if you knew that if you admitted love, it's this thing that's so powerful in the universe, and these things cannot resist it. They flee in the face of love, basically, that kind of thing. You know, just raise your vibration and then all will be well, almost, is what he's saying. Like, so on the one hand, he's kind of saying there's some really dark stuff and we should trust the government. The reason they've kept this secret is because there's some dark stuff and they've been fighting the good fight against the dark ones, right? <laughs> But on the other hand, he said, but on the other hand, if you just exercise love, it's all good. So it's a bit, again, confusing. And again, I, I like Tom. I know he means well. But again, he's not a social scientist. He's not super cautious or cognizant about the words he used and how they may be misinterpreted. So again, I see some of that going on with Lukansky too. To be honest, I'm much more comfortable with the way that Calm tends to, Calm Kelleher tends to answer the questions. I really like the way he's very precise in the answers he gives. And he offers context and things like that. And even when the question is lacking context, he provides it as part of his answer. That didn't happen so much with Lukatsky. So again, we're left with, I think it's an open question. What did he mean by that? What, what did you think when you heard that? Yeah. Well, there are two things I think about um, beyond what you just talked about there. And that's that, you know, is it a, meso is it a meta metaphysical layer? You know, if the true full capabilities were known, we wouldn't be concerned about it because metaphysically, the things that happen on in this particular you know frame of experience aren't really all that important. Like they're just you know it's just a, it's just a, a lesson we're taking in a classroom, and the the broader experience is more, far more important than this one particular iteration of it. So you know could it be that? Could it be a, a larger scope, bigger picture way of looking at things? Uh, yes, there's danger, but it's not really you know something to be truly feared from a macroscopic perspective. Um, the other thought I had, which I I don't think is really what he meant, but it, you know, got me thinking. You know, capabilities is often used in a in a in a uh, military context, 
you know, human capabilities? What what are our what are our military capabilities that we already have developed, perhaps that that might, you know, give us reason to feel more comfortable? And you know, Tom has talked about those things as well. That there's been this, you know, sort of quiet, uh, almost hidden process of cooperation amongst the world powers to, uh, you know, work together in order to, to be able to prepare ourselves in the eventuality that we have to do something. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you and I particularly hold that perspective. It doesn't seem to be that binary to me, but, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought that occurred to me when I read that quote. On the one hand, as you know, from what I tend to teach in the class and whatnot, I do think the metaphysical overarching architecture does matter. And I do think we should think about whatever even potential threats are posed differently because of that metaphysical architecture, that sort of overarching picture. But I don't know that that's what Lekatsky was doing. If it was, it's a strange way to introduce it, especially without context, because the rest of the conversation was about nuts and bolts, technology, that kind of thing. And to suddenly insert a metaphysical principle in the midst of that and not explain that you're doing that and give any kind of context in terms of what you're referring to on what level of reality kind of thing was, if nothing else, a bit confusing, a bit opaque. I think, again, when people talk about, well, is it possible that this is some sort of reference to us having some sort of capability to defend ourselves? What's interesting about that, again, is that in other parts of the interview, he goes into just how complex this is and seems to imply that there's multiple layers to this and multiple actors, and that this is not one bottom line. He basically says that to Jeremy in one of his answers. So again, it gets a bit confusing because on the one hand, he's saying it's incredibly complex. There may be no bottom line or there may be multiple bottom lines. But then on the other hand, in another question, he's saying, if we only knew our true potential, we'd have nothing to fear. So those kind of seem like non sequiturs to some degree. And there wasn't a lot of follow-up to clarify what he meant. And even if they had asked the follow-up questions to their credit here, to be fair, he probably would have said he can't answer that question anyway. Right. Yeah. It's a great point. Well, you know, he, <laughs> on that point specifically, in fact, you know, he basically said that he wasn't a disclosure advocate, you know, that, that he's not really uh, someone that is fervently pushing for disclosure, which I found a little bit odd generally because you just wrote a book about this stuff and you're willing to appear you know, on a podcast that is clearly advocating for disclosure. So it's a strange, again, strange, confusing mix there. Uh, they they asked him uh, about you know testifying before Congress. He said that he had turned down an invitation to do that. They asked, well, what happened if you were subpoenaed? And he said, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I mean, what kind of a statement is that? You know, I, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Uh, or maybe I'll lie if I'm actually subpoenaed. Uh, in fact, he almost said something to that effect, you know, in the interview that it was you know, he was willing to kind of, I don't know, shade the truth somewhat. So, uh, you know, this gets to the point. You know, where where is Lekatsky in this entire picture? Here is he is he driven mostly by his national security oaths and his desire to protect the country? Is he, uh, you know, in on the side of humanity at large? You know, wanting us all to have a broader understanding of what's going on. Or is it somewhere in between? Indeed. And I think what he actually said was, when asked sort of at a follow-up question, are you for disclosure? He said, within security limits, mm. right? So his main focus was on the sense that there really are, in his view, legitimate national security concerns that must trump any public disclosure to the American people. 
because of course, one of the comments that got brought up was this saying that whatever you share with your friends, you end up sharing with your enemies. And he even said at one point that he's old school. He doesn't even think about some of the nation states in the world as adversaries, but as enemies. And he's chiefly primarily concerned with anything that comes out publicly could aid them in their attempt to thwart us and to have this sort of clash of civilizations, basically. You think about China, communist China rising up. There really is a sense that in some ways it feels almost like the Cold War all over again, where it seems inevitably there's going to be this class of civilizations because there isn't really much blending. There's sort of have these two parallel tracks rising up with China getting ever more powerful. You think about just the natural resources they have, the population they have. It just looks like we're headed towards that. And so he may be thinking about that primarily when he answers this question. And to your point, he almost seemed like he didn't want to answer the question straightly about would he testify. And when he says, across that bridge when we come to it, it's almost like he wants to keep his options open and maybe doesn't want to later on be held to what he said here. So he basically gives a very confusing answer. It wasn't exactly, absolutely. If I'm called in front of my country, you know, before Congress people who represent the American people and I'm asked to speak under oath, I will tell the truth. Gosh darn it. I mean, the people deserve to know that's not what he said at all. And I think some people were taken aback by, like you said, so you're publishing these books, you're coming on a podcast, but you seem very hesitant about how much comes out. Now, before we went on the air, you and I talked about the fact that there are very real sociopolitical, geopolitical concerns that underlie this matter. This is where it gets so complex because you can have some people who, again, have this unchecked assumption that First and foremost, I'm an American and I'm concerned about our enemies. And so I'm going to basically consider this matter and every matter within that overarching framework. But if this is a meta narrative about the nature of reality itself, that surely trumps nation states. Now, I'm not saying the geopolitical question doesn't come into this. It does. It should be a factor. But what seems strange to me is how there isn't even an acknowledgement on his part when he's doing one or the other. So you sort of have on some points where he's saying things that make it sound like this basically undermines our current view of reality. We need to rethink the entire thing. Other times he wants to slot it in with not just a common physicalist perspective, but even a current sociopolitical kind of perspective and equation. And that seems strange to me. And again, because there isn't sort of the, the nuanced questioning to sort of pull that out. And even again, to their credit, if they had asked him, he probably would have said he can't answer the question. So again, I think this is why many people came away frustrated because it's not just that he answered questions in sometimes opaque ways, but even when he did say something of substance, it seemed to undermine something else he said somewhere else. And so you weren't really sure where he stood in an overarching perspective. Yes. And for me, it, 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 you touch on this here, but it, it speaks to the layers of, of reality that, would, that are happening at the same time. And, and you know, here I'm going to, Talk about something I've talked about before on the show, but you know there are different concerns that that we need to be mindful of, and it's it's very easy, I think, particularly in in this day and age, to get kind of myopically focused on what's important to me. You know, like I'm interested in this, and uh, I've had this experience, and I need answers, and I need the truth, and I'm entitled to the truth. I'm a human being; I have these human rights, innate rights to the truth about reality, and I should have them. Right? I get that. I think everybody can relate to that. That's a very uh, you know, personal way of looking at the world about reality. 
but then we also have the interpersonal reality. You know, how do how does my experience uh, intersect with yours within my family, within my community, within my neighborhood, et cetera? You know, what what's important for for that group of people to be aware of and to know in order to function? You know, and then you can keep scaling out from that. You know, geopolitically. You know, we live at a basically in a powder keg right now. We've got you know, Israel and Hamas, the Middle East. Like it's 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 a very tenuous situation, and we have to be mindful of that. Like I don't care about you know the the sort of your grandiose ethical concern. Like we have real human lives at you know at stake here, and we have a responsibility, whether we like it or not. You know, we can all bemoan the fact that that states exist and we have these national boundaries and. You know, we have these different cultural perspectives that kind of prevent us from getting along together, but it's the reality we live in. And if you're in charge of those states, if you've been given the responsibility for those millions of lives, then you have to think about that. It's an, it has to be paramount in your mind. And then there's another reality, right? On top of that, there's a metaphysical one. You know, what does it all mean? And what, what, what happens after we die? And, you know, is there more to this life? And do I get more chances at this experience? And you know, does what happens in this life really ultimately matter in the grand scope of reality and experience? So you have all of these things are true and they're all happening at the same time. So I think we have to be mindful of that. And I think we have to understand that if you're a player in this particular story, you know, which realities are the most important for you and, and which responsibilities have you been given? It's very easy for us, just like, you know, you're watching a football game and saying, well, I would have done that. And I would have made that pass and I would have tackled that person. It's it's an entirely different matter when, when you literally have to make the decision when you're in that missile silo and you could push the button. A wholly different experience there. So I don't know. I, I, I'm i frustrated. It sounds like I'm frustrated because I am because social media just feels like we have a lot of folks that are just like, damn it. Why haven't we you know, had disclosure yet? I'm, I'm getting tired of the waiting game. And I just for me, it feels like it, it makes a lot of sense because there are so many variables at play here. Yeah, there's definitely a myopia crisis in social media in many ways. And the group thing that tends to happen, people tend to end up in these echo chambers, doesn't help either. It's ironic that when we think back to the dawn of the internet and everyone thought this would be a great uh, champion of knowledge and cross-pollinization of different groups and different knowledge bases across the planet. What's actually happened in the 2020s is much more that you end up with these echo chambers where you can basically have a custom delivered version of reality that you want and only associate with the people who have the same view as you, which of course just tends to further divide the populace. And that's why we partly end up with a situation where we're in a kind of quasi civil war situation. But to what you were pointing to earlier, I came across this term I'd not heard before this week. It's polycrisis. So we're not just facing a crisis, but a polycrisis. And this speaks to the escalating climate crisis, the war in Ukraine, rising inflation, a food and energy crisis, multiple extreme weather events, a global health emergency, right? We just came out of a pandemic, widespread social unease. Like you said, that didn't even get to the Middle East situation. And here, polycrisis is similar to BUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Now, if that doesn't speak to the UFO phenomenon, I don't know what it does, basically, right? I think so. So, yeah. So when you think about trying to, in a kind of linear, myopic way, push for disclosure without being cognizant of the context we're in, 
then you're definitely missing the big picture. Somehow all of this has to slot together. Like you pointed out, one political party right now is not even able to get its act together to basically govern whatsoever. And so it's one thing to talk about these committees and whatnot, but if you can't basically have a functioning democracy, then that becomes sort of a second question that you can't even get to. So all of this is happening at the same time. Again, as I've said before, I think that there's a reason for that. I think that these two are connected, but nevertheless, we have to think about the context when we think about what disclosure means. And I think also, we've said this a few times now in the last few episodes, we've raised a question, even for those of us who are fascinated and obsessed with this topic, we still have to ask ourselves and not assume that disclosure is in the public interest. Because the question again comes down to, what do you mean by disclosure? Almost every episode we record, even though we discuss the nuances of this matter, I find people in the comments saying things such as, oh, I disagree. People will, will be okay with this. It'll be easy enough. Those who aren't not really concerned about it won't be any concerned about it. Those that want confirmation will get confirmation. It's all good. And again, what they're assuming there is that this is some sort of revelation about the fact that space aliens are here and we're going to have some sort of committees formed and we now have an interplanetary kind of community. Of course, the question is, is that the matter or is this about the nature of reality itself? Does this go back to the forming of religions and the meaning models that have been central to our entire development as a civilization and multiple civilizations on the planet? How do you roll that out? And how do you roll that out in the best of times, let alone when you're in the midst of a polycrisis, right? These are questions we have to think deeply about. And again, rather than armchair quarterbacking, and by the way, I think it's been at least 10 episodes since we've had a sports metaphor. So that was <laughs> nice that you brought that in. You're welcome. And you brought in football too, so that's nicely American. But yeah, absolutely. These are the, the big picture questions we need to ask. We have to ask these other questions simultaneously while we talk about the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I find that uh, you know, Tadu, you touched on this unique time that we're in, and and the internet and what it's kind of done to us. There's a great deal of chaos within our lives now. Uh, there, there's a polycrisis internally happening, and that's manifesting itself in the world as well. So the 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 trauma that we kind of have inside is, is becoming trauma that is existing in the wider reality, and that's a part of this, right? That, that is a part of this entire. Uh, experience. And it makes me wonder, without going too far off on a tangent, what are the what are the conditions which need to be at play in order for this to really happen? You know, is there does there need to be a grassroots sort of movement in in civilization to shift our way of thinking so that we become more aware of the broader picture of each other, of our of our connectedness? Is that even practical? Or is there instead going to be more of a, a a traumatic event that happens to the world that that causes and catalyzes the kind of change that would be necessary in order to be able to listen to what the phenomenon is actually telling us? And I think about that, that quite a lot. You know, can we actually get to an understanding of reality without a, a society-wide kind of trauma? Well, it's very interesting that you asked that question because I don't want to give away too much, but Bernardo and I get into that in our conversation. And one of the notions that we discussed was this idea that 
high strangeness might not just be this random thing that happens to happen that has no meaning behind it. It may be actually a kind of impetus to challenge our thinking, to widen the scope of our thinking, because the problem is that we are so locked in a narrow frame of possibility right now that the way that the world works now, the way our civilization works, there's not enough impetus or catalyst to really get us out of this rut. And so that's interesting in light of what you just said there about some sort of cataclysmic event, something massively impacting happening that perhaps while in the short term might be incredibly destabilizing, also serves as the possibility of what puts us on a course of real transformational change. And this relates to something I discussed in our class about how trauma has this dual nature. Where on the one hand, no one wishes trauma on someone else. At the same time, if you look at history, both for individuals and for civilizations, sometimes some sort of massive traumatic event becomes the catalytic impetus for some sort of transformational change. So not just a maturing of a certain stage, but enough to basically vault you into a completely different worldview, a different conception of reality itself, because you're forced to. Because the truth is we're creatures of habit, both as individuals and as societies. And so many people would point out that we basically, as a society, are the frog in the water that's slowly being turned up. Again, think of the analogy of global warming there, right? Mm -hmm. the, the point being that we don't see necessarily immediately emergencies that are going to end the world tomorrow, but at the same time, we become inoculated from the fact that there's emergencies happening everywhere. We've basically been bludgeoned by modern media to seeing one emergency after another, after another, after another. What does that do? Does that make you hyper aware and hyper vigilant? No, it does the opposite. It dumbs you down. It desensitizes you to real threats to your civilization. So we have this polycrisis kind of thing arising right now. In the meantime, people are just busy trying to pay their mortgages and you know get their kids to school on time and those kinds of things. So we're in a very, very strange situation. And that's where I think the notion that the phenomenon shows up as a way to basically knock us out of that rut and say, what about this? I'm going to throw something that's a total swerve here. And the idea is to get you to rethink everything. That may be what's going on. Perhaps again, in terms of a a kind of interventionary kind of play, perhaps the increased sightings that are reported, both by the military and by individuals, and the increased sense of the thinning of the veil that experiencers talk about, that might all be pointing towards this sense of this catalytic event, whether it's one thing or many, many things sort of in parallel that are enough to perhaps, hopefully one hopes, take us beyond this rut before one of these emergencies that we hear about every single day eventually becomes the demise of our civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot to take in, and uh, you know, it's it's an important issue. And I think, anyway, a lot to impact there. And I know we'll continue to talk about that one because it's a it's a big deal, um, and it's important. It's been again, like I said, it's been on my mind quite a lot. I, I wanted to um, you know come back to some things that Cassie talked about. Uh, you know, Grush was brought up in the conversation and, uh, you know, kind of getting thoughts related to Grush and what he was talking about. And that sort of spurred a comment or two about uh, kind of 
how these compartmented programs work and you know how individual officers are tasked to these programs to basically create confusion, to throw people off the trail, to, in, in a sense, generate false and fraudulent documentation. Uh, and so he wasn't necessarily calling Grush out specifically, but it was, again, brought up in that larger context. So what is your take on that? And does a, a bomb comment of that quality kind of make you have to question everything that is out there now and go, is anything true? Because then maybe all this stuff could be just fraudulent paperwork dreamt up by a Rick Doty type person. Yeah, that was definitely a really interesting piece when basically Jeremy Corbell asked Lukatsky about Grush, hoping, I think, that he would basically support the notions brought forward by Grush. Instead, Lukatsky seemed to hedge a little bit and actually offer some counterpoints that in some ways, potentially anyway, again, undermine what Grush had said. Because we know that part of the Grush revelations are that he has received secondhand information from credible sources around reverse engineering programs, biologics, those kinds of things. But rather than confirming that that's very much part of the situation, instead, Lukaski chose at that point to make the note that disinformation is part of the SAPs. So basically every SAP, special access program, has a counterintelligence officer whose job is basically to make stuff up, to throw people off the trail by not just, basically even within government servers, for instance, intelligence servers, basically, he was saying that there are documents that are forgeries, that are flat out forgeries. And so he seemed to be introducing the possibility that because Grush had only secondhand information, he might have either received fraudulent misinformation documents, even within government circles, or he may have received testimony from someone who, again, received or accessed fraudulent materials or disinformation, misinformation campaigns kind of thing. So again, for someone who's a detractor of Grush, this is fuel for the fire. I thought that was kind of unfortunate. I'm not saying that Lakatsky meant to do that. I don't think he really was that thoughtful about what this might do in terms of the impact. But I think, unfortunately, what it'll do for some of the detractors is give them fuel to say, yeah, look at this. Even a guy who ran the entire program is admitting that there's disinformation within government circles, within the military industrial complex. And because Grush only had secondhand information, how do we know he wasn't accessing that? And that made clearly Corbell nervous because he could see where this was going. So he tried to get him to come back and say, but you are saying, right, that there are these programs and that, in fact, you even accessed perhaps one of these craft. But that was an unfortunate situation, I think, because I don't think he meant to do this. But unfortunately, what this might do is actually give potential for others to undermine what Grush has said. Yeah. Well, and I found it hilarious too, because once he started going down that path and they kind of put it back on him. Like, well, how can we trust anything that you would say? And he's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not a disinformation officer. Like, that's not my job. And it's like, well, I mean, you basically have done what you- What would a disinformation officer say? Right. You know, you said there's no ability to trust anything. And so then everything is, is uh, you know, under the microscope and, and of perspective, uh, speculation is being false. Um, but yeah, I mean, think about the big documents here, you know, the Wilson Davis, uh, memo, you know, that, that was read into, into the, into the record. Uh, you know, obviously that's always been a part of the UFO lore and there'd been 
proponents and detractors of that for a long time. Um, here, I think too about you know the folks like John Greenwald who are foiling documents, you know, and getting those nuggets of truth because they got a FOIA document and maybe it's just a complete piece of garbage, you know. Um, you know, keep in mind that that counterintelligence material could not just be like a fanciful UFO story. It, it could be the absence of a fanciful UFO story to cover up what is actually UFO activity. I mean, this is the problem I'm illustrating here that it's introduced by this kind of commentary. Nothing can really be looked at as being truthful. And and again, back to what I said earlier at the top of the episode, if you're in a compartmentalized situation, how do you even know? How do you know what is truthful or not truthful outside of the narrow scope of your compartmented access? And so, you know, for him to say, you know, I've seen documents and they're definitely not real. Well, were you read into that program? How would you even know? So it, it just raises a whole host of questions. And I, like you said, I think it does provide some fodder for the detractors. But that's the really that's the reality of the environment we're working in here. As Grush himself said, there's been a sophisticated disinformation campaign waged against the against the American public and the world for decades. Well, that's a part of this, right? And as I posted on uh, on social media, if the reality of the phenomenon is as what we've talked about, a, a very intelligent, uh, hyper intelligence capable of kind of doing what it wants in the reality that we occupy at will that a nation state has no ability to control that. Like they, they, they can't kind of keep that in a box. So what your only choice that you have then is to throw out a whole bunch of crazy stuff. Because if you can confuse reality enough, you, you don't have to worry so much about whatever it's doing because you've thrown so much confusing material out there that no one really is, is being taken seriously who has an experience with it. I mean, it's, it's confounding enough on its own. Right, so it, it does help to explain the the odd things that we've seen over the decades that the government has done. They're they're trying to play this kind of confusing game, and it speaks to your point earlier that if this were really just ETs from another civilization, the truth would have come out a long time ago because that's so much simpler than what's really at play here. Indeed, and it is ironic that on the one hand he defends the stovepiping, the compartmentalization. He basically says. It is necessary. This is how we guard secrets that could get to the, our enemies, basically. And we do know historically that, again, thinking back to during the Cold War, where there were situations where people in the CIA were actually agents working for the Soviet Union. So there were real concerns about who knew about these things. And so that's when this incredibly strict need to know and stovepiping was put in place. And on the one hand, Lukatsky is defending that, saying it's necessary. But as you say, he seems to also at the same time make some assumptions about how much he understands the big picture and seems thankful that he didn't have to deal with politicians knocking on his door saying, what are you doing spending taxpayer money on, on dino beavers, right? He didn't have to worry about that. But again, that's the nice side, but he doesn't know what other programs are going on. He did. They talk about basically knocking on doors and having doors slammed in their face, basically, right? And then again, kind of ambiguously talked about, well, there's more than one way you can quote unquote skin a cat, sort of implying that they found other ways to get to that information, even though he can't talk about that, right? <laughs> so, but again, the the overarching question though is that, that I want to ask is, to what degree has the stovepiping and the compartmentalization Again, for a hyper-intelligent civilization or intelligence like you talk about, 
or intelligences, right, with a phenomenon, especially one that can move around space, time, and ways that we don't understand, how do you know that they haven't elements of them, factions of them, completely infiltrated the military-industrial complex and are running the whole thing, letting different groups here and there learn things here and there, make them feel confident about that, make them feel good about themselves that they have the secrets, while there could be secrets in another program that contradict those secrets, but they have no way of comparing notes because of the excessive compartmentalization. So I know this has been one of the questions within these uh, circles in terms of the people that are really thoughtful anyway are asking, to what degree might that compartmentalization actually work against us? How would we know it's going? How would we uncover a scheme of that nature? First of all, knowing that these groups are incredibly intelligent and sophisticated. Again, I'm talking about elements of the intelligence behind the phenomenon. But on top of that, we've set up a situation that has made it impossible for us to identify even if they were running a scheme like that. Again, I want to bring up the fact that I've heard about seemingly human-looking people that walk into the Pentagon and whatnot that seem to have access that no one else in the building seems to have. They seem to have like cross-agency access, even access across these compartments, right? These these different stovepipes. The question is, how did they get that kind of access? Could they actually be agents of the phenomenon? If there are groups of people working with elements of the phenomenon, how much could they run the whole thing in a way that it would never be discoverable? These are questions we have to ask. Now, I say this also knowing that, of course, my perspective is the most ascendant ones of these others have our best interest in mind because they are coming at this from a non-dual perspective. Everything is connected. They see us as brothers and sisters, the kindergarten class they need to watch over. But that doesn't change the fact that there are others that I think are much less mature, still motivated by selfish concern, have their own agendas that could use that stovepiping for their own ends and us have no way of uncovering it. Again, on top of that, when you add to the picture that the military industrial complex is a sucker for technology that can make better weapons, then if you offer that to them as one of these less mature groups, then they're going to sign on the dotted line. So again, this comes down to David Grush's revelations about accords that have been signed. Again, I keep trying to point out to people, don't miss that. This is a key element of his revelations that actual accords have been signed. So if accords have been signed, how much of those cords ended up changing the way our government works, the way that the military industrial complex works? These are questions that we are not getting to yet, but ultimately we need to. If you weren't paranoid before, you would be now, right? This is the problem. Uh, this is a, in some ways a, like a mind trap and virus that we can get you know, locked into is now we're seeing you know, ghosts everywhere, we're chasing at windmills, and it's hard to really tell up from down, which, fine, look, I, I look at that as, okay, let's take that to to a, a further logical conclusion. And, and essentially that conclusion is no one is essentially right, right? No one has the corner on ultimate truth in, in this moment. So fixating on that in a way isn't really the right fixation. And like you, you and I have talked about before, it's sort of this um, tendency that we all have to fixate on getting something. You know, if I want this particular object or I want this particular knowledge, then I will have arrived and everything will be great. And I think that that's a misplaced kind of desire. You know, so if you can 
see it, see it for what it really is and focus instead on something else that is more important. Um, you know, being present, being aware, not necessarily like getting that next hit of dopamine from the juicy release that happens or whatever you're chasing, then I think you're going to be better off because there's, there's always going to be something if that if that's the, the hamster wheel you're on, you're always going to be running. Um, there's some other stuff. There's this, this, this conversation was jam packed, right? So, uh, I want to make sure we get, get to some of these other bullet points. There was talk about, and this was kind of interesting, that he brought up the sort of the nature of time and the fact that these craft are kind of almost like time machines uh, in some some way and that they're all quite unique. They're not, you don't necessarily see a, an exact kind of craft over and over again. So what were your thoughts about that, uh, about that part of the conversation? Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating revelations. And I hope people caught it because- the implications are really interesting and it kind of throws you for a loop because again, there's certain ways we think about the way that technology works in the modern world and it leads to certain assumptions about the way that even future technology would work or the way that it would work if it was an extraterrestrial civilization. And yet that's not what we see. So one of the things he brought up, for instance, was that across all these different cases, when they actually do take the time to catalog the different kinds of quote unquote, crafts that are seen, there's very few exact duplicates. He mentioned that sometimes in one sighting, you might see duplicate craft that basically looks like the same model, right? We think again here of Bob Lazar and the sports model and these different, several different craft that apparently had been recovered, right? But what Lukaski was pointing to was that when you look at, for instance, modern SUVs, they all look very, very similar. And on top of that, you can identify that's a GMC, that's a Ford, that's a Tesla, that's a Toyota. What he's seeing here is that when we actually look at the catalog of different kinds of craft, there's so much dissimilarity. They almost never look the same, which raises questions about how are these craft actually manufactured? Is manufacturing even the way to think about this? Are they purely shape-shifting kind of materials? Are they, again, semi-organic? They also brought in the fact that cultural shaping is one of the things that we have to think about with this phenomenon. So are the appearance of these craft meant to change our thinking, direct our thinking? Again, in ways that's kind of like the subversive way, right? It's not on the surface. It's a subversive way of actually getting us to think differently. So where we think something is about one thing, actually it's all the underlying elements that we're only semi-conscious of that actually are the ones that ultimately perhaps are steering our civilization. And again, we think here of Jacques Vallée and the control system hypothesis. The notion there is that not only do you shape the direction of civilization, but you do it in such a way that the civilization never recognizes that there's an external group doing that, basically. So that was fascinating to me, the fact that not only do these crafts seem to defy so many of our notions about how craft should work and lift and propulsion and all those things. But that was very interesting. I mean, what did you think about when he basically acknowledged that? And this was a real nugget, I think, of revelation, that one of the key but strange elements that comes out of this is that there's almost never any repetition in the forms themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole host of questions. And you know, in some ways, you think about the the trajectory that we're on now technologically, and it's kind of becoming hyper-individualistic. It's becoming, uh, as you said earlier, reality is very 
individually tailored. And so it's not too hard to conceive of a future state of technology where there isn't a common kind of manufacturing process. It's really just what is it that you envision creating? You know, it's uniquely suited to your particular needs, desires, wants, functionality. It's it, everything is kind of an an outpouring of who you are, um, an extension of who you are. Quite frankly, I mean, why why stop at a machine? Why not? Why why maybe it's just like an extension of your biology in some way. It's a it's a way that it kind of uh, extends your conscious awareness and your field of awareness into other you know, aspects of reality that you by yourself can't access. So you're kind of joined in a way with this kind of te technology, but it's it's not technology, nor is it biology. It's a little bit of both. Well, and it's interesting too, a couple more notes on this. There's so many interesting nuggets here, even again, in the midst of a kind of confusing and frustrating interview. He even brought up the fact that some of these crap looks like something right out of the Jetsons. And anybody who remembers the Jetsons cartoon, it looks kind of hilarious. Like it's kind of an idealized version of like 1950s notions of what the future would look like. And what are the chances that an extraterrestrial civilization, for instance, would happen to have a craft that looks like a Jetsons cartoon? It's preposterous really when you think about it. And you have no choice therefore, but to think that one of the leading candidates in terms of understanding why it appears that way is that somehow it's either shaping or responding to or both our cultural expectations about technology, about the future, these kinds of things. This was fascinating to me. And the time part was interesting. You brought that up earlier because one of the points he made was that, and it was quite interesting that he said this, kind of provocative. He said, are these time machines or something like that? And the reason why he said that is he's pointed out that sometimes the same craft was noticed 20 years apart. So if you and I look at a Toyota Corolla, I drive a Toyota Corolla, a model from 2022. But I also had a Toyota Corolla in the 1990s. It does not look the same as the Toyota Corolla I have now. So why would you have a craft that looks exactly the same 20 years apart? They're clearly not rolling out new models like we are of our manufacturing process. Again, which again raises questions. But in addition to the possibility that that might be part of it, there's also the question that it might be the same craft from a certain relative era, but to us, they're skipping through time, right? So this is part of it that the reason why he suggested these might be time machines is that rather than only rolling out one model and never changing it, instead, what if you have one model that can skip through time or what we perceive as time anyway? Very interesting notion. And again, I'm aware of cases where some of the intel I've come across seems to suggest that even cases that were far apart in the historical record, but are logged as these important cases in ufological history, are actually the same craft, the same being skipping across time. So that being part of the case raises some really interesting implications, not just about the possibility of extra tempestrials, but also of the possibility that whatever these beings are, even if they're not that, they're not neo-future humans, they still have the capacity to run circles around us, even in terms of space-time itself. Yeah. And the time piece is, is absolutely fascinating. And as we talked about many times before, it's a uh, you know, time and space time itself is not necessarily fundamental uh, in the way that we used to think about it. So changes the way we think about the phenomena entirely and, and about our own lives as well. Just kind of the the sequential way that we think things happen. And you and Brado talked about this on your show. This, uh, you know, causal way of looking at reality may not be how it actually is. Uh, I found that part of that conversation very fascinating. Um, you know, they also touched on... Uh, 
you know, how you would define the phenomenon from a national security standpoint. And and here you, you touched on this earlier. Colm had a, a very good way to sort of contextualize thinking about the national security piece of it. And, you know, he essentially said that he didn't find it necessarily to be a threat to national security, but is clearly a threat to human health. And and they had documented instances where if you get too close to it, you know, there's a physiological effect that you you've got to deal with there. Um, so I found that interesting that there's uh, on the one hand some very overt references to national security. Yeah, I can't tell you about this because national security is a big deal. And then on the other hand, it's like, well, actually, it's not really a threat to us. Like it hasn't really done something to our our security in that level, but it's harmful to us on an individual physiological level. Right. That and in, in addition to that, what he's saying, I think, is that the phenomenon itself or the intelligence behind the phenomenon don't pose the risk to national security. But if our enemies came across those technologies, that could pose a threat to national security. So he's sort of like toggling between those two different perspectives. But yeah, it was interesting because at first, Jeremy asked Lekatsky, do you think these pose a national security threat? And he really hedged on his answer. He said, well, there's so many variables, even that question. I don't know how to answer it. And then thankfully, Calm interjected some sanity into the conversation and said, I'm happy to answer that question because I've been asked it many times. And we actually were very methodical about how we approach that question. He said that in order to determine threat, you need to consider two variables, capability and intent. Now, clearly the capability, you check that off, right? Absolutely. When they show up at our nuclear facilities and can shut down our silos, clearly they have the capability. When they can change human perception, when they can seemingly freeze local space-time while they conduct some sort of endeavor, clearly they pose a risk in terms of their capability. But Colm made the point that people, and I'm thankful these people exist, really railed on the fact that you cannot answer that question though without determining their intent. And there was very little progress made in, in terms of determining their intent. And here I'm talking about like specifics. I'm not talking about the fact that as many people conclude, they're showing up at our nuclear facilities to actually send us a message, a coded message that this is insanity. You need to shut these things down before a major catastrophe happens, either deliberately or accidentally. Many people conclude that, but I think it's fair to say that we don't know that for sure, right? That's somewhat of a putting two and two together, but they haven't come out and sent an email to the White House or to the nation saying, this is why we're doing these things, right? So any kind of conclusion we draw is based partly on supposition. So he's saying that without establishing intent, we cannot answer that question. And I think that's the way to think about it. But that said, I think one thing that's really interesting that I always like to interject here is that even historically, when you think about the military industrial complex makes its living to some degree on establishing the existence of threats. Back in the 20th century, even in the Project Blue Book era kind of thing, internally, what was said over and over again is that these do not seem to pose a direct threat to us. They have amazing capabilities. Their technology runs circles around us, but we have no signs that they actually have a direct intention to harm human civilization in any way. This is the kind of nuance we need when we approach this question. Again, for me, I really pay attention to wording, language, vocabulary. I remember I was in undergrad philosophy of religion class and my teacher, who was an atheist, kept saying, the problem of evil is such and such. And he said it like it was just a thing. 
And I interjected and said, you mean the apparent problem of evil, don't you? Like I wanted that nuance of that qualifier because again, there's certain assumptions that we have a complete understanding to even pose the question in that way. And thankfully, even on the final exam, I will tell you that he actually put a little asterisk. According to Mr. King, we will say apparent problem of evil, right? So I scored some points there. He did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the point being that you know we do need this kind of nuance. We can't be fast and loose with these really significant questions about whether or not this poses a threat to us. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, and but you do have to contrast that here with, uh, they also talked about the incident in Calaris, Brazil which clearly did harm some human beings there. And I also think, too, of things that David Gresh has said, that there were some malevolent actions taken against human beings. So uh, it, it's, as we've talked about many times, it's a very complex issue. There are multiple intelligences at work here at multiple different stages of development maturity. So it, to take it all and say they, quote unquote, you know, have malicious intent and they are a national security threat is really the wrong way to look at it entirely. But there's this whole, you know, coming back to Calaris, there's this whole fascinating component to that. And uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that aspect of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Because again, one thing I found a little bit frustrating and a little bit misleading was that Jeremy asked that question and he got certain answers. Again, I'm thankful that Calm was so careful about the way he answered that question and so precise in his language and what goes into answering that question. But then Jeremy seemed to want to be ask a follow-up question that was even more fired up. Well, what about what happened in Brazil? I mean, it seriously, quote unquote, effed people up. And even to the point of murder, that's literally what he said at one point. Now, on the one hand, I don't deny that. And as I keep saying, my perspective is the most ascendant of these ones because of my understanding of consciousness and the ultimate nature of reality do mean as well and are actually trying to consider our evolution as a species in the biggest picture, much beyond what's going on in 21st century kind of affairs with this polycrisis. But nevertheless, because this is such a complex matter, which undoubtedly involves many different kinds of intelligences with very different origin stories probably, it's silly to talk about whether or not, quote unquote, the UFO phenomenon poses a threat. And yet I do see to some extent, even in that interview, that toggling between acknowledging that this is a multi-party kind of affair and then still sometimes asking questions as if it's a singular entity or actor. And Lukatsky again, said something interesting when Jeremy was trying to pin him down on the bottom line of what this is all about. Lukatsky said, quote, the bottom line may not be what you anticipate. In other words, there may be no bottom line. There may be multiple bottom lines. And then he went on to basically say that we've got a lot more work to do. And here he was even speaking of Arrow. So to me, that's acknowledging that to try to reduce this to one answer is mistaken, that we already have enough data to suggest there are multiple actors here. Again, this is where I definitely would depart from the views of someone like John Keel, who wondered if about this sort of super spectrum of one entity just parading in different guises kind of thing. I think it's much more complex than that. I think that regardless of what we find out about reality, it's much weirder than we not only have thought of, but can conceive of even. And while I see this overarching move towards higher stages of consciousness, I think that's baked in 
if we don't blow ourselves up in the process, that is. Nevertheless, there's a lot of complexity in between. And again, as we've said on episodes recently, for some reason, when we think about the extratempestrial possibility, the notion that these are neo-humans from the future, some of them perhaps even, according to Mike Master's model, may be coming back from as close as like 50 or 100 years, right? He doesn't think it's very long before we develop that kind of technology. If that's the case, then suddenly it's much easier to think about them as having their own agendas, them maybe being concerned about us, but it not being a chief concern. They're much more focused on their temporal locality and switching timelines in such a way that it benefits them. Suddenly, when we think about it from that sort of neo-human perspective, it seems much easier to think about a complex sort of political kind of arrangement where there's this kind of negotiation going on in real time. What did you think about that when you think about the complexity piece and and what we were just discussing there? Well, I quite frankly am grateful that's part of this conversation right now because and this this makes me think about you know Grush and what he said about uh, you know non-human intelligence and you know, using the right terminology to talk about whatever that this might be because my concern you know overall is that the people in charge of trying to understand this are going to flatten it to such a degree that they come to the wrong conclusions. And the fact that we've got individuals closer to some of the aspects of the phenomena who are willing to entertain these various facets of what it might be, this whole, there may not be one bottom line conception, that's encouraging, right? That's what I'd want. I'd want them to, to have that level of awareness and maturity that we may not understand the entire picture because look, Bad things happen when we misunderstand situations, right? If we have a misunderstanding about what's really going on, we may do something rash and violent that we can't we can't turn back from. We can't come back from. And so I, I'm I'm very encouraged by it. I think it means that we've got um, you know folks who are starting to think about this in the right ways, and and I just hope that that continues to be the case because we need it to be sort of a contagious thing. I have no doubt that there are probably individuals who are closer to aspects of the phenomenon have been studying it. From their vantage point, it all seems probably pretty bad. Uh, maybe whatever they've been working with or experienced, maybe the only facet they've been exposed to is something negative. Well, we need to hear that perspective. We just don't need to let that perspective be in charge, right? We need to have a, a consortium of thoughts and ideas approaching this. Absolutely. And that's when you think forward to this panel that's going to be formed, you really do hope there's an interdisciplinary kind of approach, and that some people with a generalist perspective, some people with real clear thinking about different metaphysical models are involved. All of that is really important. But again, just to put this in context for people, if an alien race were to say, we need to know, are human beings a threat or not? And so then they parade Hitler in front of the stage and they say, look at what these people are. These beings are mass murderers of their own kind, how can we possibly trust them? And then another group might say, no, look here, Ramana Maharshi or Gandhi or Jesus. And what a great example of benevolence and interconnectivity of a cosmic race is exemplified in this being. Both those things are true. So we shouldn't be surprised where on top of that, you might have different beings from different origin sources that it doesn't surprise me at all that we have beings like what were reported in Calaris, Brazil. And just to your point there, yes, there seems to be real evidence of what seem like malevolent actions of a group that did attack people, basically, 
We did, maybe are missing some context, but certainly on the on the face of it, it looks like a group that didn't exactly have the best interests of the people locally in mind. And they make the point in the interview that if that were happening in Iowa or Texas, you can guarantee that would be headline news, right? It wouldn't be back page news like it is now. So we do need to consider these things. But again, we'd be very careful not to let our animalistic kind of fight or flight kind of perspectives kick in here because we hear about one story like Claris Brazil or even what's happening in South America now with these beings that are supposedly attacking locals. I'm not saying that's not real. It could very well be real. Seems to be quite a bit of data pointing that direction. But I wouldn't want us to therefore have this knee-jerk reaction of saying, we need to get our act together and figure out how we're going to defend ourselves on Independence Day when it comes down to the final battle. That will only take us in the wrong directions. And I think, again, because that's so much the tendency of our contemporary civilization in terms of our current center of gravity of consciousness, that's why these most ascendant ones are so careful to not intervene, actually. They're much more, from an outside perspective, subtly giving these hints. If I think about a control system, I think about benevolence. I think about a group that doesn't want to directly betray their presence because they want the kindergarten class to figure it out for themselves. Because what they are, not just as beings in this iteration, but across multiple iterations along the spectrum of consciousness evolution is what they have in mind. So again, I want to point out to people that when you see crafts sometimes, or you hear about accords, or beings are spotted and photographed, the ones that are the most likely to be spotted, have accords made with, etc., may be the ones that have the least benevolent intentions in mind. Because the ones that are the least interventionary, but still overlooking and trying to interject positivity here and there through some sort of control system, I think those are the ascendant ones. That's one way that I make sense of this. And again, I've seen evidence from some of the intel I've seen suggesting that's the case. So be careful about what you want in terms of beings landing on the White House lawn, because the question is which ones would actually do that. Mm, right. Yeah. Sort of the heavy-handed approach versus the versus the soft, nurturing approach. All right. I want to end on one that I just I feel like we have to talk about because I can't believe it came up, but it's men in black. How did this come up in the conversation? Uh, what are the conclusions we can draw from uh, the fact that we had a discussion here about the men in black and the phenomena? Yeah, that was another piece of the interview that kind of threw me for a loop because it wasn't what I expected. And Lekatsky's response was definitely pretty thought-provoking again, almost provocative. He basically said, we need to think about the, what did he say again? The The cultural elements, right, involved in this. And then when Jeremy asked him for an example of that, he brought up the men in black. Yeah, so the comment he made was that the phenomenon, quote, manipulates cultural variables, unquote, which is a very Valley-esque kind of comment to make, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of control systems. And when Jeremy asked him for clarity on what he meant by that, he brought up the men in black, which is not exactly what I was expecting at all. Probably the least likely thing I was expecting Lekatsky to bring up, especially in light of Dino Beaver's criticism and whatnot, right? <laughs> But then he said something very interesting. He said, what if this is a reverse psychological operation? What he meant by that was that the common notion is that the men in black show up to suppress evidence and to suppress testimony so as to hide the entire endeavor from the general public. But he said he actually thinks it has the exact opposite effect, that the men in black is such a well-known component of the lore that it actually adds 
to the credibility of the entire thing and almost stokes people's curiosity about what are these beings that are trying to suppress these things, right? And they look human, but not quite human. And his point is that he thinks that's actually reverse psychology, that actually feeding the lore with those kind of enticing tidbits actually increases the discussion, ultimately makes it more likely that it'll have uptake in the civilization. Yes. And how many parallels can we think about here when it comes to men in black and, uh, and events and sort of cultural history? Uh, even the book has three guys that are in black on the front of it. So, you know, I mean, it's an invitation. I feel like you're saying it's an invitation for curiosity. Uh, it heightens the degree of strangeness. It, it piques the interest. You know, this is abnormal. This feels weird. It feels almost uh, uh, nefarious in a way, sinister. And that makes me even more curious about what I experienced because this doesn't happen in the normal course of my day to day. And so it's going to stay with me. It's a residue of the experience that that, that sticks around, and be, I can, clearly it's become part of the cultural lore, right? So I, I find that very interesting, and and a, a, you know, again, speaks to the fact that here we have a person who's spent some real time and thought thinking about aspects of what what's going on here, and not just sort of jumping to one particular conclusion. Indeed, but while that was a very provocative and interesting take, it's still not my take. And I think what I think about here, again, are the nature of the accords. Again, what's surprising to me, almost amazing to me, is that people are not really considering what the implications of those accords might be. Because one of the things that Grush pointed out was that much of the lore ends up being true. And of course, part of the lore is that there have been hybridization programs, not just by these quote unquote alien groups, in agreement with, in cooperation with various human groups, perhaps even military industrial complex groups. Then you think about the notion of things like super soldiers that have been created as part of this hybridization program. Again, I want to point out to people, while I have an overarchingly positive view of where consciousness is going and how there are ones overlooking the entire thing, call it the Galactic Federation or the Council of the Godhead or whatever you want to call it, depending on which tradition you're referring to, Nevertheless, rather than thinking about good and evil in absolute terms, think about evolved and less evolved, mature and less mature. Some of the less mature groups, speaking of like going to like, end up making accords with these military industrial complex groups that are just fascinated by the technology and what they can do with that. And even Stephen Greer has talked about some pretty nefarious things that some seemingly military industrial complex related groups have done with some of that technology in terms of human trafficking and whatnot. But from my perspective, what the men in black represent, because the lore includes them not exactly being quite human, is that they are part of this process where hybridization programs have been undertaken in cooperation with some military groups and some of these perhaps less than benevolently oriented alien groups, whatever alien represents here. Absolutely. To me, this is a an amazing journey to be on, right? It's a, it's a, quite an incredible time to be alive and to be witness to what's taking place in the world. Yes, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of turmoil, but there's also a lot of hope uh, and a lot of promise and, and potential if we're willing to seize it. Um, can we get past these some kinds of uh, almost great filter moments that we might be coming up against? I, I certainly hope so. If human beings only knew the potential they held, there'd be nothing to be afraid of. 
That's it. Bingo. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to we're going to wrap up the show. It's been a, a real pleasure speaking with all of you and thank you all for listening uh, to the show. Uh, really enjoy the comments that you that you share and also your word of mouth recommendation for the show means a great deal to us. So thank you for providing that. And we look forward to doing future shows in the time to come. And on that note, may the quality of our questions shaped by a desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames. <laughs>